Well, good evening. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City. I'm also the lead model in our church. <laughs> I lead a team of volunteer models. And uh, I'm, so glad, I'm so glad that you're, you're here tonight. I'm, I'm so um, proud to be a part of this Love Works campaign. Gene and I have uh, already given the first half of our gift. I'm going to give our second half in, in a little bit and signing up with our family to serve. And uh, it's fun to be a part of something that God is doing. It's just, there's just nothing like that, to be so clearly a part of something that God uh, is doing in our lives, in this church, in our city, and around the world. And I want to get into the week two, part two of our Love Work series, but before we do, I want to let you know about a little problem we have, and then let you know about a solution that we feel God has led us to. Uh, first, I want to let you know, uh, this morning at our 11 o'clock service, there was not a seat to be had in this room. In fact, we had to go to an overflow room, and that filled up right after the start of the service. And so our overflow room had an overflow room. And our 9 o'clock was just as full, and you can look around tonight and see all the folks that are here. We have a real problem. God is growing our church. You keep bringing your friends <laughs> to hear about the transformational love of Jesus. And while I'd love to say stop, um, that would be kind of against what the Bible teaches. And so what we say is, okay, God, what do we need to do to keep up with what you're doing? And so we've been praying and figuring out as leadership team, how do we respond to the growth that God is bringing to this church? And I want to let you know about something you're going to hear more about in the future. I'm just letting you know now so that you can kind of plan accordingly. Uh, on February 9th, which is the week after the Super Bowl, so that's for guys' calendars um, and girls' calendars, uh, the week after the Super Bowl, okay, we're going to actually roll out a fourth gathering here at Soul City Church, which is very, very, very exciting. So we are going to have, I'll put them up the times, sure, yeah, you can clap for that. I, don't, I mean, if you're going to clap, though, do it for Pete's sake. All right. So I want to read to you, can everyone read the number on the left? What number is that on the far left? What's that little letter after it mean? Okay, five o'clock crowd. There's another 8.30, and it's in the morning. <laughs> now, the morning is when the sun first gets here. No, I'm, I'm giving you a hard time. I know, it's really fun, actually. I was having lunch with a guy that's new to our church, and it was so fun. He's been coming for a couple weeks now, and he's a musician. He kind of travels and tours all over the place, and he's usually out pretty late on Saturday night. And he looked me in the eye and said, I can't tell you what it means to me to have a church that is here on Sunday nights. He's like, I've been wanting to go to church for a long time here in the city. And I didn't know that that was even like a church could do that. So he's thanked and thanked and thanked me. Thank you so much for having the 5 o'clock service. And so we love this gathering time. And as God is growing our church, we need to make more room somewhere. And so we're adding an 8.30 a.m. service, a 10.30 a.m. service, and a 12.30 p.m. service. Now, I'm telling you this because it's really cool to see how God's growing our church. And I'm telling you this because you may have friends for whom those times you go, that actually is the time they'd want to come to church. They might be more open to coming to church at one of those times. Maybe you didn't even know that we had morning services. We do. In fact, we're about to have three of them. And so it gives you an opportunity to maybe serve at one of those and attend this one or attend one of those and serve at this one. A lot of cool opportunities for us. I'm just letting you know now so that you can kind of be in the know and be kind of, a, you know, insider on this information. On February 9th, we're moving to four gathering times, which is a very, very, very exciting problem to have. 
As Jeannie mentioned, we are in week two of our Love Works series. Last week, we, we started this whole idea of how love works by looking at a reality that we all have to come to terms with. Is before we do anything, before we try and love anything or anyone, what we have to first recognize is the only reason that love works is because God loved us first. God loved us first. That's, rare, like, that's where it all starts. We have nothing to offer this world if we don't first get and receive that reality in our lives. You are loved by the God of the universe. I could spend the rest of my life looking every one of you in the eyes and looking myself in the mirror and saying, you're loved by the God of the universe. You are loved by the God of the universe. That message alone would be enough to carry you to heaven. But there's more to it than just that. You are loved. And so what we're going to look at this week is how then do you respond to God's love? How do you and I love God back? How do we practically in our lives put love to work in our relationship with God and, as we're going to see, in our relationship with each other? We're going to look at two sections from the Bible. We're going to look one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament to give us a really practical picture of how you and I can tonight actually put love to work in our lives. And let me just say a word for you. We're going to get incredibly simple with this message tonight. Like, so for those of you who like to consider reading a book, just reading the back paragraph on the back cover, you're going to love this message because we're going to make it as simple as possible. And for those of you who'd call yourselves Christians, you'd say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've kind of signed on board. I've given my life to him. What we're going to be looking at here tonight is central, sacred, fundamental, foundational teaching on what it means to have a relationship with God. We don't have a relationship with God outside of him loving us and us loving him. It's not about all the things you do for God. It's the relationship you have with God that compels you to do things with him. So this is kind of fundamental stuff. And for those of you who'd say, I don't know if I'm there yet, kind of on the God thing, but I'm interested and that's why you're here, this is fantastic. You're going to get a sneak peek into sort of what this life with God looks like. And you're going to walk out of here with things that you can actually do tonight that will have a positive effect on your life. And without you even knowing it, you're actually experiencing and participating in the love of God in your life and in this world. So I'm excited for us to dive into these two passages tonight. You know, a couple months ago, uh, Jean and I had a really special moment in our relationship. When we were dating, and maybe for those of you who are dating right now or have dated, you know when you're dating, you celebrate lots of little anniversaries because you don't have as many to remember. And so you, you try and celebrate, you celebrate your one-month anniversary because you can't believe that he actually stayed with you or she stayed with you that long. So you celebrate a one-month anniversary. You celebrate a six-month anniversary, right? And so you kind of move from months to eventually to years, and then you kind of get to where we're at in our relationship where we get to celebrate decades of being with each other. It's a pretty cool thing. And so earlier in this fall, I had an opportunity to take Jeannie back to a very special moment, a very special place in our relationship. See, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, just this late last fall, we actually met for the very first time. And we met here in the city of Chicago. I've talked about this before. I grew up in California. I was here visiting Chicago, and I met Jeannie, and I instantly fell for her. I fell for her heart. And so I was just staying for the week, and I knew I was going to be going back home. So the night before, I got on a plane to fly back to California. I was stayed at the hotel I was at. I went down to the lobby. I was actually staying at the All Suites Omni Hotel. I was a guest of Oprah Winfrey's, and so I was staying at the <laughs> All Suites Omni Hotel. And I went down to the lobby. I grabbed some letterhead. I grabbed a little yellow pad, and I began to write out to Jeannie all of the feelings that I had for her, having only known her for four days. Now, 
What I did on the cover of this envelope is I wrote her name nine times the wrong way. Nine times I wrote her name and I didn't get it right once. So three page letter on how much you love someone and you can't spell their name. Nothing says stalker more than this. Okay. I'm surprised I didn't cut out the letters and paste them on here. Okay. This is, this is sketchy, right? So what was so fun is after writing this letter and getting it delivered to Jeannie, what was so fun is to be able to, 20 years later, be living and pastoring in this city and to be able to book a room at the All Suites Omni Hotel 20 years to the day that I wrote that letter and take her back down to the lobby and say, babe, this is the space that I poured my heart out to you without even knowing how to spell your name. I've grown so much. I can spell it now. I know your middle name so much. It's so powerful to be able to celebrate that. You know, this letter to us, this letter is something really sacred to us. This is really special to us. We've had this for 20 years. How many things in your life can you say you've had for 20 years? We've had this for 20 years. This is sacred. It's made it through many moves across the country, from California to Chicago to Atlanta, back to Chicago. This letter has stayed with us, and it's always out and always available in our house. You can come over to our house anytime. Ask us. We'll pull this right out. We read it to each other on our anniversaries. We've read it to our kids. This is a very sacred and important part of our relationship. Outside of the work of God and him introducing us, outside of that, I don't know that there would be an us if it weren't for this letter. This is very, very, very important stuff. Do you have anything like this in your life that is that sacred, that special? So, something in your life that no matter what, you don't mess with it. Maybe it's a letter like this that you have from someone. Maybe for you it's a, a picture that you have. Maybe it's a picture of someone who's passed away. Or maybe it's a picture from your wedding day or from when you were a kid. Maybe you hold on to that picture. See, and it used to be when people would take pictures, they would uh, print them and hold them and not just swipe them. And so maybe you actually have a picture. Maybe it's in a book somewhere and it's very sacred to you. It's a very special thing. It's a way you hold on to something and you say, no matter what, this does not get messed with. Maybe for you, it's a tradition you have. Maybe something in your family that you do every year or a place or a way that you vacation or every Christmas, you always do this or every new year, you always do this or every birthday, you always do this. That tradition is sacred to you. You don't mess with it no matter what. You hold on to it. You make sure that no one forgets it. You get excited about when it's coming up. Do you have anything sacred like that in your life that's special to you? What we're going to look at here in a moment is a, a passage from the Bible. It's actually a prayer given to us from God that is even more sacred than the most sacred thing you could possibly imagine. More sacred than this letter. More sacred than all of our little traditions and our memories combined. This is a prayer that was so sacred and so central to the Jewish faith that it was the first prayer that anyone learned, first passage of Scripture ever like, memorized by any little Jewish boy or Jewish girl. It is a central and sacred prayer, and it's found in the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to look at that tonight as we explore what it means to put love to work in our lives. We're going to look at a very holy, very sacred prayer called the Shema. It's called the Shema. And everyone say Shema. Shema. So we're going to look at the Shema prayer. You're going to hear where that word comes from in just a second. It's this very beautiful, very powerful, and very practical prayer on how you and I can actually put love to work and how we love God because of how much he loves us. So if you would grab a Bible and open to Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
It's the Old Testament part of the Bible we're going to look at tonight. Deuteronomy 6. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We've got you covered. There should be a blue Bible in your seat back. Why don't you grab it and turn to Deuteronomy 6, pretty much all the way to the left in the blue Bible. It's page 126. I want to make sure that we're all there together. Page 126, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to look at the Shema, this very, very sacred prayer that you just don't mess with. Central prayer. In fact, just a couple words as you're turning to Deuteronomy 6, a couple words about the Shema. You know, it's so powerful. Since the day that this prayer was actually the first time that this prayer was written down, there has not been a day in history that somewhere on this planet this prayer hasn't been prayed. I want you to think about that for a second. There's not a day that's passed since this prayer was written down that it hasn't been prayed somewhere by some person of faith in the world. How many prayers hold that kind of sacredness to them? This prayer actually not only was it the first prayer that little boys and girls would learn, the first passage of scripture that they would memorize. There are several accounts in history where uh, people were martyred for their faith. Jewish people were martyred for their faith. And at their, and their last breath, their dying breath, the words that they were recorded saying were the Shema, the prayer we're about to read. In fact, it's not too hard to imagine Jesus taking his last breath on the cross and the prayer that he himself learned as a little boy being on his lips as he breathed his last breath. So sacred and central and powerful and practical is this prayer. And to kind of give it the honor that it's due, I'm actually going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 together. Maybe you wonder, like you grew up in a faith tradition where you stood and sat a lot, and you wonder why we don't do that here. Well, we're doing it now. So stand up. We're going to read a passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. I'm going to ask you to read out loud. We'll put it up on the screen if that helps. We're going to read the Shema prayer together. Let's read this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Great, you can go ahead and have a seat. You just prayed a prayer. You just said a prayer that's been said all over the world since the first day it was recorded. A very sacred prayer, a prayer that you don't mess with. Very, very, very important prayer. Let's break it down just for a, a few verses to get an idea of what this means for us to love God and to put our love for him to work. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. First word is this, hear, O Israel. That's where we get the word Shema from. It means hear, O Israel. Pay attention. Listen up. Drop what you're doing. Pay attention to this. This is important. So Shema, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. Now this is very interesting. This is where the Shema starts. First half of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, why is that so important? A lot of theology packed into that little phrase. First and foremost, the Lord is one, meaning he is Father, Son, and Spirit. He exists in the Trinity. He is three unique persons, but at the same time, one. There's a lot of theology. We've taught about that. You can go back and find that message in our archives where we've talked about the power and reality of the Trinity, of a God who has three forms, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet is always one. So there's that packed in there. But there's also something very interesting because in the context and the culture that this prayer was given to the people of God, every religion around them had multiple, multiple, multiple gods that they worshipped. It was a polytheistic culture where sort of one religion consisted of seemingly endless layers and levels of gods. And so you were always kind of spinning plates to pay homage to and to give sacrifice to and remember to pray to and remember to give to all the different sorts of gods. A lot of different gods. 
There were gods for rain. There were gods for crops. There were gods for fertility. There were gods of war. There were gods of peace. There was gods for the White Sox. There was gods for the Cubs. I mean, they had it all. This is actually where goat sacrifice came from, from the God of the Cubs. Started in the Bible. You should read your Bible. It's in there. It's not at all in there. Lots of gods. You get the point. Many, many gods. And so this God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is different from those gods. Your God is one. Just as you are one, heart, soul, mind, strength, this God is one, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one. Your God is very, very different from all these other gods. This is a special God. And what is it that this God wants? Verse 5, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now that was a head turner. Because every other God demanded something. Demanded worship. Demanded sacrifice. Demanded that you leave money at the altar. Demanded all kinds of things. But this God is different. What does this God want? This God is all about love. Having a love relationship with God. Before the Ten Commandments, before the 613 unique laws found throughout the Old Testament, before you ever have a quiet time, before you ever have a time of journaling, before you ever go to church, before you ever give at church, before you ever serve, all of that is preceded by love. Before you do anything for God, it starts in, it is in the context of Love, everything boils down to this. Love God with all of who you are for all of who he is. Everything boils down to this and everything flows out of this. Everything comes from this place before any of those things you can do for God. It starts with love. This God is so different from all the other gods of that day and of our day today. You and I have it, whether we realize it or not. There are gods that demand all kinds of things from us. There's the demands of your work. There's the demands of your relationships. There's the demands just of uniquely living in and around the city. There's demands of family. There's demands all around us. There's just about everywhere you turn, there is something or someone demanding something from you. But this God is actually different. This God doesn't demand your worship. He desires your love. Hear, O Israel, your God is different and so far above any of the gods of our day. He doesn't demand your worship. He loves you too much to take that from you. He desires your love. He, he doesn't need your love. So this is a very important point. God doesn't need your love. It's not like he's sitting up in heaven going, I hope someone will call. He's not just, <laughs> just lonely in heaven and just waiting for you to notice him. Not at all. Not so at all. God has everything he needs within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit are more than enough. In fact, everything we have comes from them. The Bible teaches that it all comes from them. God doesn't need your love, but he wants it. He wants it. He desires your heart. What kind of God is this? He is one, and he desires you out of all of who you are, in your oneness, heart, soul, and strength, to love him. But he loves you too much to demand it from you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is different. He is unique. And he goes on, because God knows us very well. 
We say around here that God is faithful and we are forgetful. And so God gives us some very practical ways for us to live in the reality of his love, this love relationship that God has established for us. So let's look at verse 6 and 7. We'll walk through the next couple verses of the Shema. This is where it gets very practical, how we put love to work. God says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your what? Your hearts. Isn't that interesting? They're to be on your hearts. They're to be on the, the place that your life lives from. To, to be on that inward, internal place. That's where you write these commandments. They're not external things you do. This is a mindset. This is a way that you position yourself in this world before God. I am loved by God, and so I get to love God. This is written on my heart. This matters most to me, this love. Verse 7, impress this way, this way of love. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. Or when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, do you see the idea here that this is not just something that you hear about at church on Sunday? It's something you talk about in your everyday life. You wrestle with and you work out in your everyday life. What does it mean that the God of the universe loves me and he invites me to love him? And so this text is saying, God is saying, listen, this is something you talk about with your kids. You work this out. You have conversations over dinner. What does it look like for us to love God this week as a family? You talk about it on your commute, on your way to work, as you're walking about. What does this mean to meditate, to think about the love of God for us and the invitation to love him back? When you lie down and when you get up, you know that for those who are sort of devout Jewish folks, the Shema is the first prayer. Not only is it uttered as a child, it's the first prayer that begins every day. You say the Shema when you wake up in the morning. And you say the Shema at the end of the day. Because of this teaching, this is a prayer that's prayed at the beginning and the end. The rhythm of my life is set to the love of God. What a powerful picture that God gives us here. He goes on to say this, verse 8. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Maybe you've noticed this before. Maybe you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family or you had friends who were, and did you ever notice that little metal diagonal box on their door frame? You ever, anyone ever seen that? You ever wonder and notice that or what that is? That's actually taken from this verse. And inside that little metal box is a tiny little scroll where this prayer is actually written. And in fact, uh, I went to the Holy Land a couple of years ago and I was blown away by to watch the worship, the prayers prayed there. And in fact, sort of the ortho, you know, any of the Orthodox folks, as I went down, I actually got to go down to the Wailing Wall and pray. And literally, on their foreheads were little boxes. On their wrists were little boxes where this prayer is actually written. Now, I don't know if God meant for us to literally make a fashion statement out of this prayer. But they took it so literally the Shema is so sacred that they literally put boxes and little prayers inside of them and wore them on their foreheads and on their hands. What God is saying here is, no, let, let, let every thought you have and let the work that comes out of your life come from this love. Let every time you enter your home, let it be a place of love where all are welcome, and there's always a seat at the table. And every time you leave your home, you leave with the love of God, and you go out onto a world that God desperately loves. This is what God is saying to us. So significant and so important is this love relationship that we have with him, that he does not want us to forget it for a second, for a single 
day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You know anyone that lives their life that way? Have you ever met someone or come across someone that that lives their life like this? I'm not talking about someone that goes to church a lot or reads their Bible a lot. Those things are fantastic and very important. I'm talking about someone who's put the Shema into practice in their life. I mean, that the conversations that you have tend to come back to the love of God. The way they go about their business, the way that they do relationships, all boils down to this idea of loving God for all of who he is from all of who I am. You ever met anyone? Do you know anyone like that? I wish I knew more. I know a few. I wish I knew more. There's one guy that I actually used to work with. His name's Larry Clark. Larry could not be more of an ordinary, unsuspecting guy. Even his name, Larry Clark. I mean, it's just pretty straightforward, meat and potatoes kind of guy. And Larry worked with us in a ministry that we were a part of where we were trying to reach young singles and young professionals, and he didn't kind of fall into any of those demographics. But he was on our team, and I thank God I got to work with him. Because what Larry Clark did is he lived out this sacred prayer in a beautiful and practical way. He put his love for God to work in everything he did. Larry made a choice. He actually made a career choice. He, he decided to, um, as vocationally, he decided to be a substitute teacher. It was a conscious choice. Not a lot of kids when they're growing up say, I want to be a substitute teacher when I grow up. Like It's not necessarily anything people aspire to, but maybe you've been a substitute teacher or you're a teacher and you know how significant that role is. He chose it for a very intentional reason. And he told me this very clearly. The reason he chose that is because he wanted to make sure that his schedule was freed up and available to anything God might bring along his path. And that there might be opportunities that God brings. He just wants to make sure that he was available to be around for whatever God was doing. So committed to living out his love for God that he simplified his life and kind of cleared up his career path so that he could do that. And chose to live a very, very, very simple life. As you can imagine, you know, substitute teaching doesn't make a ton of money. And so he lived a very simple life. And part of what he did, uh, I always assumed it was to offset the rent, but not so at all. What Larry did was he had in different seasons, different young guys in their early 20s or so live and rent out rooms in his house. And what Larry did was he intentionally mentored, or as the Bible talks about, discipled each of these young men. And each of these young men, to a guy, became leaders in our church. Because one substitute teacher said, I want to make myself available to God and whatever he may bring along my path. And if that means I choose a simpler life and I don't make a ton of money and I open up my home and I have these guys live with me and I pour into them and I share meals with them and I develop them and I disciple them, then so be it. What a way for me to live my life and love God. One afternoon, it was the, towards the end of the workday. This is a classic Larry story. So it's the end of the workday. It's like 4 o'clock or so and we had a big candy dish out in our office. And so people were kind of hitting that to get that last push over the edge of the day, you know. And someone offered Larry a candy bar or whatever it was. And, <laughs> and I overheard him say, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. And I was like, oh, hey, Larry, healthy choices. I like it, bro. It's nice. And that wasn't it at all. He, and then he went on to explain, no, 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 no. If I eat that candy bar, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get all fired up, and then I'm probably going to crash around 5 or 6 tonight. I may even kind of fall asleep early, which means I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night, which means I'm going to be off my game tomorrow. No, I can't have that. <laughs> he has a theology for candy. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> spitting out my Snickers going, yeah, no, <laughs> right. 
Shema. Like, you know, I'm not, I wish I had the same insight as Larry Clark. What he was doing with his life was really simple. I want to love God with everything I have, with all of who I am, for all of who he is. That's the heart of the Shema. This sacred and holy prayer, this thing that for generation upon generation, nobody messed with until Jesus came along. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Now, remember, this is a very sacred and important prayer. And as we looked at last week, what we see in the life of Jesus is God actually demonstrating, putting his love to work. So he sends his son, Jesus, into our world. This is thousands and thousands of years after the Shema prayer was introduced. Jesus himself grew up as a boy, praying the Shema. He was very familiar. Every day, start of the morning, end of the day, he would pray this prayer. But the message he kept teaching was completely in line with his Shema, and yet it threatened the religious establishment of his day. The message he kept teaching was about God's love for this world. And that's good news for you and me. It's bad news for religion. And they were threatened by him, and so they conspired regularly. How can we take this teacher out? He himself, Jesus being a rabbi, These rabbis and religious leaders said, no, we must shut him down and we cannot have this message about God's love getting out of hand. And so they tried to corner him several different times. In Matthew 22, we have an instance where they tried to get from him sort of his his kind of boil it all down, his summary statement, the back of the book cover. What does the whole thing have to do? What is the whole sort of Old Testament? What is the whole message of God? What does it all boil down to? And so the smartest guy of the bunch kind of, you know, got up to Jesus and said, okay, Jesus, boil it all down. What's the greatest, what is the single greatest commandment? It's a trick question because any good Jew knew the answer to that question before it was even finished. And so, Matthew 22, we get to see Jesus' response, how he boils it all down. Matthew 22, we'll start in verse 37. To this threat and this challenge, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So you can see all the religious leaders in the room nodding their heads and stroking their beards. Yes, that's exactly what we thought, Jesus. And then he goes on to say, And the second one is like it. Did they ask for two? No, they asked for one, and Jesus goes, I'm going to give you a bonus. See, because I'm the God of yes and. I want you to understand what really is at the heart of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Yes, that is true. And he says in verse 39, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, all of it, hang on these two commandments. You see, so you want me to sum it up? You want me to boil it down? This is it. Real simple. Everyone listen up. Love God, love people. It all comes down to that. Now, you have to understand, while this is really inspiring to us, it was incredibly, this was a very real threat to his life. This was blasphemy, what he just did. Now, Jesus pulled from Leviticus 19 and added that on to this very sacred, important prayer of the Shema. But what he did there is he did something that no one would ever dare do. He added to the Shema. He amended it, in fact. The Shema is something sacred that comes from God. Only God can add to or amend the Shema. No one would dare dream of adding to the Shema, unless, of course, they thought they were God. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He says, yes, you're right about the Shema, but you missed the bigger picture. Love God with all of who you are 
and love others. You know, can you, you have to try and understand what this did to those gathered around him. Imagine if I were to kind of get to this point in the message and, you know, teach through and talk through the Shema and say, this is, this is what God says. This is the word of God. This is what it all boils down to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and always vote Republican. <laughs> or always vote Democrat. Do you think we'd get some emails on that one? Which one do you think we'd get more for? No, I'm just kidding. Don't answer. Don't answer that. 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 Now, you, if I were to say that, maybe you've been in a church where that's been preached, one of those messages. We get, those become sound bites that get people in trouble and ultimately get people fired. It's the kind of sound bite that ultimately led to Jesus' crucifixion because he'd had the audacity to add to, to amend the Shema. Yes, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and... Love other people. The second is just like the first. In fact, they live in harmony with each other. In fact, the two are actually one. They work with and for each other. Loving God is loving others. Loving God means loving others. Loving God doesn't just mean sort of living this devout life and making sure you read your Bible and making sure you show up for church and making sure you sing songs. That's all fine and that's all great and that's all good. But Jesus says, loving God means you love people. Now, you can love people without loving God. Millions and millions of people have done that for thousands and thousands of years. But you can't love God without loving people. We looked at that last week in 1 John 4. You can't love God without loving people. You don't get to opt out of the second half. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love others. Love others. Loving God means loving others. The people that he's put in your world, the people that he's put around you, the people that you know, the strangers that you meet, Every single person is an invitation to live and walk in the way of Jesus and to love God by loving them. Love God by loving others. How's that going for you? How's the loving others part going for you? Are there, are there parts and there are people where you go, totally, I get it, I, I love God, that's why I'm here. I showed up tonight, make sure whoever's taking attendance, I'm here. I love God, right, this counts. And I love most other people. I love some people, but there are some that I just, I don't, that rule doesn't apply to them. Someone else will love them, not me. You have anyone like that in your life? You you can love God. We can have a dynamic, transformational experience with God here on Sunday. How do you do it loving them tonight at dinner? How do you do it loving them tomorrow at work? How do you do loving them when you go back to your parents' house in the suburbs? How do you do it loving others? What does that look like for you? How's that going for you. Next week, Jeannie's going to get really, really practical and really, really helpful by teaching through how we love difficult people. How we put love to work by loving difficult people. Just real quick, show of hands. You got any difficult people in your life? Anyone at work? Anyone in your family? All right, if you have a difficult person, raise your hand. And keep your hand up if you are a difficult person. That's what I thought. All right. So bring your friends next week. It's going to help them love you. Okay? Jesus says loving God means loving people. You can love people without loving God, but you can't love God without loving people. He had the audacity to add to the Shema. 
and to say that these two go hand in hand. We love God by loving him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all our strength. And we love others by loving them with our time and our presence and our resources. See, they work in tandem with each other. So how are you doing at loving others? Is there anyone in your life right now that you are feeling an invitation or a conviction from God to say, you know what? I've kind of opted out of loving them. I thought this rule didn't apply to them. I thought this way of love excluded them. What would it look like for you to extend the love that God has for you? Listen, you could take, if we took five minutes, I bet every single one of us could come up with a hundred reasons why God shouldn't love us, and yet he does. So do we want to then keep making lists of why that person doesn't deserve love? God loves you. Again, we could say that for the rest of our lives. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And he's inviting you to love him and love others. What would that look like this week for you to really live out that love, to put it to work in your relationships, in your world, the people you see at restaurants that serve you food, the people that you walk by on the street, the people that live in the home with you? What would it look like for you to really love them well because you are loved so well by God? I love getting glimpses of what this looks like in and, in and throughout our church. I want to just highlight a few ways that people are practically putting love to work and loving others, specifically maybe even loving you, because they get this idea about loving God means loving others. I think specifically, most especially this time of year, of our street team, uh, specifically led by Matt and Salako and several others, who are outside every week shoveling snow, clearing the sidewalk, directing cars, setting up signs. They are here long before you get here, and they stick around long after you're gone to make sure that you have a place to park or that you can walk here safely without falling and cracking your head open. They're here every week doing that as an act of love for you. In fact, most especially, I was aware of how great that love is last Sunday when Siberia hit, and we were all, especially at our 5 o'clock service, the brave souls, everyone who came to the 5 o'clock service last night just got bonus seats in heaven for showing up here last week. And then right in front of them in line are all the people that served on the street team. And I think they do this week in, week out, and you may not ever even notice them, but maybe Maybe for a moment we could say thanks to them right now. Maybe for a moment we could say thanks to them, Kurt. My goodness. Look, your job's easy. All you got to do is clap. They're shoveling. Directing traffic, for Pete's sake. You got out easy on that deal. I think about last week. It's so fun to see. Quick snap, very quick snapshot that Jeannie caught and she passed on to me and we were able to celebrate with Brandon Hoskins, one of our volunteers in Soul City Kids. He and his wife, Laura, rock stars, right? They just serve and they love Soul City Kids and they're out every week. Laura teaches and our daughter is just obsessed with Laura and loves Miss Laura. And Brandon's out in the family lobby every week kind of making sure that families kind of get checked in well. Now listen, it is hard enough getting to church with kids on Sunday. It's hard enough getting here as a family. Sometimes people don't even want to go home with the same family they came with because it was so intense getting here. And so he's up there just making sure that it's a calm, that it's a great environment. And he noticed that over on our little keyboards where we check kids in, you know, we check families in so they can have their little stickers so everything is safe and secure. He noticed that the keyboards were a mess. In fact, it looked like someone had actually made and eaten s'mores on the keyboard. <laughs> and so all on his own without anyone telling him to do so, he goes and gets supplies and he begins to clean off every little row and every little key of that keyboard. 
I don't think anyone else would have noticed. Jeannie just happened to be walking by and caught him loving our church that way. And when we went out to dinner with them last Sunday, just to be able to say, you have no idea what a big difference that small act of love makes. Because what it says to those moms and dads is we thought about you. We hoped you'd come. We tried to prepare as great a space for you as possible because we love you and we love your kids and we want you to experience the love of God in real and tangible ways. That's love at work. I think about Allie, who's been a part of our church really from just about the beginning. She's a school teacher and she made a switch in her career this year and took a job teaching at Brown Elementary School where Jeannie just talked about, the school we've been partnered with from day one. She made a choice. Now, she could have, you know, had a lot of opportunities, could have taught in a lot of schools where she would have a great sort of upward mobility, sort of a great career path, but she chose to teach in a greatly under-resourced school that has basically been forgotten by CPS. Why? Because she loves those kids. She loves the families, loves the faculty. Now, listen, it's already hard enough being a teacher. Any teachers in the room say amen. It is already hard enough to be a teacher, but to teach in an under-resourced school where everything seems like it's a battle, uphill battle against you, and to say, I'm here because I love these kids, and in some small way, day in, day out, I want them to know that they are actually loved by God, and I have an opportunity to extend the love I've experienced. The love I've experienced from God I have an opportunity to extend that to them. What would it look like for you to extend the love of God in your world, to love God by loving others this week? Maybe for you, the the best first step, maybe you kind of look across your relational inventory of your life and go, I am trying to figure out how to do the loving God thing and the loving others thing. I just don't know. Maybe a great next step for you is to do what Jeannie talked about a bit ago and to sign up to be present, to be a part of Love Works, to just show up, to sign yourself up and show up and say, I don't even know how all this works, but I'm here to put love to work. I'm here because I do love God and I want to love others really well, like God loves me. That's maybe the most important thing you need to do tonight is sign up to serve, sign up to give, be a part of what we're doing here in this church, what God is leading us through in love works. A lot, it's going to take a lot of different expressions this week. So I just want to challenge you to sit with that question. What would it look like for you to put love to work and loving God and loving others really well this week? You know, there's no greater reflection. I could walk through story after story of how I see folks in our church really loving God and loving others well. But there really is no greater reflection, no greater picture of God's love for us and specifically of how Jesus loved God and loved others other than the cross. You think about that for a second. The cross stands as the ultimate act of loving God and loving others. Jesus says, I love the Father enough to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. I know that my life is sent here to pay a price for sins that he did not commit, that you and I would commit, but so great is the love for the Son, for the Father, that he would go to the cross. God, I love you, and so I will bear the cross. And then as he looks out over this world, so great is his love for others, so great is his love for you and me, that he bore the cross and he took upon himself the sin of the world, not just the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. He took that upon himself, bore the weight and rejection and totality of our depravity upon himself as an act of sin. I'm here because I love God and I love others. There's no greater picture than the cross of what that looks like in this world.
And so what we wanted to do is, as a moment of response and reflection was to sit with that reality of how great the Father's love is for us, made available through the Son and prompted in this moment by the Holy Spirit that we thought we could just take a moment and stop and respond. And so we're going to do here something we do every month at Soul City Church. We're going to stop and do as Jesus taught us. We're going to reflect and we're going to remember the reality of the cross, the reality of Jesus' obedience to God and love for us. We're going to receive communion. And Jesus, the night before, ultimately, he would be arrested and just the night before the cross, gathered his disciples together, his followers together. And what they didn't know is this would be their last meal like this together. And he gathered them together and he took table elements. Again, God knows us. He knows how forgetful we are. And so he took the most simplest things. He took bread and he took wine. And he said, I don't want you to forget the significance of what's happening here. And he broke the bread and he said, this bread is like my body broken for you. And I want you every time you take this bread to be reminded that God actually came to be with you. This bread's like a reminder that I physically came to be with you and offered my body to be broken, to be offered up for you. And then he took the cup and he poured that out and he said, look, this, let this remind you of the blood, my blood, the only perfect blood to ever flow through human veins. Let this be a reminder to you that this is what pays the price of your sin. And I offer it freely for all. This is a symbol that God is for you. He has made a way for you through me. And I don't ever want you to forget that. And so in keeping with the teachings of Jesus, we're going to actually take a moment and stop and celebrate and remember through the act of communion. I'm going to invite you up here in a moment after I pray to take a piece of the bread and break it off and dip it in the cup and be reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus. God is with you and he is for you. And we have nothing to offer this world without what he has offered to us. Love only works because God loved you first. And so... I'm going to invite you as soon as I'm done praying to come up here to the front. Over here on your left, we'll have gluten-free bread. We don't want anyone to be kept from the table. So that's going to be over here on your left. And then we're going to sing and pour our hearts out to God as an act of love to him in this space and in this place tonight. So let's pray together right now. Jesus, thank you for what you did to demonstrate your love for us. Thank you for what you do to demonstrate. God, we have... We have... Nothing in this world without you. And so help us remember that right now and help us remember what's been offered to us through you, through your son, Jesus. Thank you that you don't demand our worship, but you desire our heart. You love us too much to make us love you, but God, you want us to be in a loving relationship with you. And so I pray tonight, even at this table tonight, that there would be folks here tonight that would come into an enter into relationship with you, that they would get tonight how great your love is for us and that they would love you by offering their life back to you and entering into relationship with you. That is what this is all about. Thank you that it is your love, God, that leads us and compels us. It is your love, Jesus, that led you to the cross and ultimately raised from the dead by the power of God to seal the deal 
for a relationship with God. And it is love, Holy Spirit, that you are pouring out in this room and in our hearts right now. And we recognize that. And we stop to remember and reflect and receive and respond in this moment. It's in your name, Jesus, that we come to the table. Amen.